The dogma lives loudly in you, and that's of concern, said Senator Dianne Feinstein in 2017 to Amy Coney Barrett during Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings uh, to serve as a judge, a federal circuit court judge. You know, in, as I'm sure we all know, in the past few weeks, Amy Coney Barrett has been nominated to serve to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And in those weeks, uh, the news coverage has rehashed uh, this famous exchange between Feinstein and Coney Barrett, where Feinstein said the dogma lives loudly in her. I haven't been able to watch this past week's confirmation hearings as closely as I would have liked. From what I can gather, senators were more careful this time not to spew anti-Catholic soundbites. But there was still a, a tension around Coney Barrett's uh, devout practice of Catholicism, a tension um, some senators had with it, but uh, especially was evident in the media coverage uh, of Coney Barrett. And as I read these various articles and, and analysis on the confirmation hearings, I couldn't help but think of the line from our gospel today, where Jesus says, uh, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Right? Jesus, in this simple sentence, teaches us about our obligation to civil authority, our obligation to God, and what to do when those obligations conflict with each other. Let's take a look at the gospel, and then we'll circle back and talk about the current situation um, in our nation. Our gospel begins with the Pharisees laying a, a rather cunning trap for the Lord. They ask Jesus a simple yet loaded question. Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? How is that a loaded question? Well, here's the deal. If Jesus says, yeah, it's lawful to pay the census tax, the Pharisees will use it to discredit him. They'll go around to every devout Jew in Israel and say, how can you even listen to this man? He's a Roman collaborator. He is supporting this pagan empire ruling over us with an iron fist. But if Jesus says, no, it is not lawful to pay the census tax, well, Rome will look at him as an enemy, as an agitator, as somebody stirring up rebellion. He will undoubtedly, Jesus that is, will undoubtedly be arrested, probably executed. So it is a, a, a tough situation. He's, Jesus is between a rock and a hard place. It's a catch-22, so to speak, but he handles it beautifully. He says, first he calls them out for their hypocrisy, and then he asks for a coin asks for the image and inscription on the coin, which the Pharisees admit is Caesar's. And then he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That's what happens in our gospel. But what does it mean? Well, in saying render unto Caesar, Jesus shows us that if we follow him, we still owe some basic obligations towards civil society. Following Jesus doesn't absolve us from responsibility towards civil society. We have a basic obligation to obey laws. Of course, assuming the laws don't command something immoral, uh, assuming the laws are just, right? We have an obligation to support uh, our government by a fair and just tax. Uh, in other words, to be good citizens insofar as we are able. Of course, Jesus also reminds us that we must render unto God the things that are God's, that yes, we have an obligation towards Caesar, towards civil society, but we have a much greater obligation, a much higher prioritized obligation towards God, 
Why? Because we owe God everything. He created us out of nothing. And when we sinned, he redeemed us in the most marvelous way. Just as this coin given to Jesus bore the image of Caesar, so our souls bear the image and likeness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we have an obligation to obey the laws of God. Uh, but, but much more than that, uh, we owe God um, our, our heart and our soul and our mind. We owe him love. Uh, we owe him service with our time and talents. Uh, we could go on and on. I also mentioned that, that when these obligations collide or conflict, this sentence provides some guidance. And we've seen this throughout history. So to just stay on the theme of Roman emperors, in the ancient church, it was uh, many a Christian was faced with a serious dilemma. They, were, they either could offer incense to the Roman emperor, um, worshiping him as a god, or they could refuse and be put to the death, or uh, in some cases they weren't put to the death, but they would lose property and title and, and, and reputation. And uh, look, this is an example of Caesar um, grasping for something that is God's, not his, the honor that is due to God, the worship that is due to God, not Caesar. And so many a Christian chose rather to die or suffer uh, loss of, of property and reputation than uh, engage in idolatry. Or, you know, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, actually, I think I talked about St. Thomas More. He uh, was very high up in the church, uh, in the government of England and uh, the government of King Henry VIII. And when King Henry VIII decided to break away from the Roman Catholic Church, he uh, required his subjects. Uh, take an oath of loyalty, and included in that loath was assent to Henry VIII uh, being named the head of the Church of England. Well, what were St. Thomas More's uh, famous words? I die the king's good servant, but God's first. You know, it's as if he's saying, yeah, Henry, I am your servant, but you're asking for something that I cannot give. You're asking for something that is due, um, essentially, that is due to God. Now, uh, we are not in nearly as dire a situation as St. Thomas More was, as the early Christians under Roman persecution was. But we have seen over the past decade plus some very real tension between Caesar and the church in this country. You know, think, for instance, of the Little Sisters of the Poor. The government tried repeatedly to force them to pay for abortifacients and contraception. Thankfully, for now at least, um, that, that ordeal is over. And, you know, I think Feinstein's comment, the dogma lives loudly in you to Amy Coney Barrett, it's a pretty good example of the tension, the friction between uh, the church and state, between Caesar and the believer. You know, it's interesting, Feinstein d didn't have a problem with the fact that Amy Coney Barrett was a baptized Catholic. She didn't say the dogma lived loudly in, in her because she went to Mass on Sunday or, or said her prayers. No, it's because of how she lived and how she integrated the teachings of the church with her life and her worldview. That's what seemed to be the problem. And then there's this, this use of the word dogma. You know, dogma in the secular world is something of a scare term. You know, dogma is used in the secular world to make something sound menacing. You know, for instance, in the secular culture, it is not a compliment to call someone dogmatic. If someone's called dogmatic, it means they're uh, authoritarian. Uh, 
uh, and way too aggressive in asserting their opinions. Now, the secular world might use dogma as a scare word, but for our Catholics, dogma has a very precise meaning. Very precise meaning. As Catholics, we believe that Christ founded the church, that he gave to Peter the first pope and his successors the charism of infallibility. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? And this means that uh, so the church can never officially teach errors on faith and morals uh, when the pope and the bishops in union with the pope teach um, ex cathedra from the chair. Uh, they cannot teach error on faith and morals. That's infallibility. However, dogma is not merely an infallible teaching. It is an infallible teaching that is divinely revealed, right? Revealed by God, uh, who cannot deceive nor be deceived in sacred scripture or sacred tradition. In this regard, right, to say that dogma lives loudly in a person, we should take that as a compliment. What does that mean? That means that the truths necessary for salvation that God has revealed to us, that we have integrated with our life and our with our mind, our heart, and our soul. You think of it this way. At the very heart of the Catholic faith is an encounter with a person, Jesus Christ. He is real. He is not dead. He is not a myth. And we can have a true encounter and relationship with him in prayer and the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. And what Jesus asks us when we encounter him in prayer and the sacraments is the same thing he asks his disciples throughout the Gospels. Follow me. Follow me. Leave behind the false promises of the world and follow me. He wants us to follow him and become his disciples. That word disciple means student. And to be a disciple of Christ, it doesn't mean that we merely learn what he teaches, learn what his church teaches. We need to interiorize it. We need to integrate it with how we live our life, with how we understand reality. That is what it means for the dogma to live loudly in us, to encounter Jesus and to follow him and to allow him to instruct and form our heart, our mind, and our soul. To follow him, even if it means opposition from the world, because make no mistake, Jesus was crystal clear about this. He said, if the world hates you, realize it hated me first. And in the world you will have trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So let us render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Let us render to God the things that are God's. And may the dogma live loudly in us all regardless of what Caesar thinks about it.